Dune. Multi-layered interactions of politics, religion, ecology, technology, and human emotion. Never Odd or Even production. Greetings, friends. This is Will Nicholas from Never Odd or Even, and this is the Dune podcast. Um, we're doing a pre-movie watching podcast where we're talking about the Dune universe and uh, the novels and all of the things that we've seen. And uh, I'm going to give a brief synopsis um, of, uh, of the story that I found on IMDb, uh, written by Warner Brothers. Uh, a mythic and emotionally charged hero's journey, Dune tells the story of Paul Atreides, a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, who must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict, conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, a commodity able to unlock humanity's greatest potential. Only those who can conquer their fear will survive. Um, so much more could be said about this uh, universe and the, the story behind it. Um, based on uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, um, written in 1965. Uh, and today I've got with me three guests uh, from from various walks of life and different places. Uh, Gwendolyn Jane, uh, Michelle Eastwood and Philip Menzies. And we're going to have a bit of a chat. Uh, each of us are planning to go and see the movie sometime in the first week or so of its release. I thought maybe we might just begin by introducing ourselves um, and saying a little bit about um, how our, the beginning of our relationship with this Dune universe and, and Dune story. My name's Michelle. Uh, I'm a researcher with the Australian Lutheran College and I recently submitted my doctoral thesis. So I'm waiting for the examiners to get back to me and say, yes, you're brilliant or something like that. <laughs> um, I am a reader. So I first came across June on a list of, uh, I think it was 160 books that everyone must read. And um, so I read it to tick off it tick that one off the list um i haven't read any of the others i haven't seen any of the movies so i'm a real newbie um i do like science fiction though um more generally but always the book never the movie sure uh yeah um i've uh, worked in the disability sector i've worked uh, there for uh, many years now i first came across dune in my final year at high school in 1981. So, of course, I read all the books that I wanted to read uh, because they gave us books like Pride and Prejudice for, 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 for my HSC. So I had to read the books that I wanted to read and Dune was one of those books. I very quickly devoured Dune, Messiah and Children of Dune uh, in the same year. And then uh, in 19, I think about 1984, God Emperor of Dune was released and I read that straight away. Um, so I followed them. I've read five and six, The Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, but I remember almost nothing about them. Um, I've watched all the movies and all the, uh, and all the uh, miniseries uh, and played the board game. Uh, so I'm a diehard Dune fan, and I've written a paper on on Dune, comparing Dune to Foundation. 
Yeah. Um, hi, Will and, and Phil, Philip and, and Michelle. I'm, I'm delighted to be on the show. Um, my name's Gwen. I'm a natural resources economist um, specialising in the moment at, in water policy. So um, all the ecological and um, economics of June I'm really um, interested in. Um, I think I first read June when I was in high school, probably mid-high school. And, and unlike Philip, I love also Pride and Prejudice. Um, but... <laughs> but um, yeah, I think um, also I have a bit of connection with June in that um, when I very first met my husband, our very first conversation was about June um, and, and now we're happily married and, and both lovers of June. I've seen all the films, I've played the board games and I'm also in a, a role-playing game um, which Will is hosting. So, um, yeah, like Philip, a bit of a diehard um, June lover. So it's an incredibly rich universe um, with with so much depth to it. I, I was reading around earlier, and I, and I discovered that on on Wikipedia it says the story explores explores the multi layered interactions of politics, religion, ecology, technology, and human emotions um, as the factions of the empire co- confront each other in a struggle to control the spice of Arrakis. Um, and Michelle, part of um, your studies are around ancient religious texts, um, so I imagine there'd be some fascination um, in the way that this this fantasy constructed um, um, universe has these ancient religious texts as part of its um, its makeup. Yeah, I guess I felt when reading it that um, it didn't strike me as an ancient text. It struck me as a modern understanding of an ancient text. <laughs> um, and so lots of the the parallels that Herbert is drawing are really about politics and power and religion. And I think, you know, you only have to look at Australian Parliament this week and we see those things intersecting and playing out Um and, and using religion to get power and to manipulate people. I think these are really modern themes, um, possibly more than ancient themes. Well, let's stay with religion to begin with. Um, it's got um, so many different um, religious themes. I was fascinated with the idea of the missionary protectivia, if I'm protectivia, if I'm saying that correctly, the idea that, um, that uh, a foresight of prophecy um, would be planted in places in order to create safe spaces for religious figures in the future. Um, that whole idea of retrospective and 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 future prophecy um, is a really fascinating one, and one that exists within existing religious texts today. Yeah, I, I mean, I I work with the Bible, so I I tend to think of prophecy a little bit differently. That. I, I tend to think of prophecy as truth-telling rather than um, foresight. Um, but we do see the biblical text um, and other texts, like I think Notre-Dame's too, we see them saying, well, you know, this is what this ancient text said obliquely, but we can make it fit this modern thing and so therefore it fits this new story. And, of course, that's all through Jim. You know, they've got these very vague um, things that have been said and they go, oh, we can make it fit um, Paul's life. And, of course, some of them fit much more closely than others. Um, but was he destined to be the, however you say it, Quidditch, Quizach Hatterit or whatever? <laughs> was he destined to be the one? Um, maybe. But like Macbeth, I think he makes himself the one because he knows some of these prophecies from his mother. 
So um, for me, that's a really interesting conversation about like when we know things, we make them become true as much as them being um, destined to be true. I think one thing that's interesting is that the the sort of the, the mainstream religion, if I can call it that, with the Orange Catholic Bible that, that is um, part of the Imperium, um, arose from actually, um, you know, a confederation of people from many different religious backgrounds and they sort of sat down with the goal of writing a sort of a pan a pan religious text and and that that actually like if if you I don't know if you've read at the end of the first June book there's like a little appendix about the religion of June and they go into like this this history of how the Orange Catholic Bible came to be and and actually um, in that process there was um, sort of a lot of controversy because some people saw that what they were actually trying to do was come up with a a text that was based on logic and reason and actually a repudiation of religious values. And so it kind of parallels a little bit in the, the Enlightenment for me in terms of a lot of people that were involved in, in Western Enlightenment um, period kind of came at it from a religious tradition and then you saw this overwhelming force of reason detached from religion come into it and then some of the original thinkers started to repudiate things and, and you know, you can kind of see that replicated in the Orange Catholic Bible but then... Um, I guess there's a parallel in that that religion became sort of the religion of, of the Imperium in the same way that I guess secular humanism is now sort of a real pillar of Western thought. And I think, you know, as Michelle said, um, so much of what Herbert was doing was paralleling um, the history and politics of sort of the mid-1900s, you know, 1965 when it first writ all the way into the, the Cold War period. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence. My, my feeling on the universe that uh, Frank Herbert has created is really that he has created a universe without spirituality. So there, there is religion, and as you said, Gwen, the Orange Catholic Bible is a, is a really uh, f- fundamental part of many people's b- belief system. But um, I believe that, that Herbert is, is describing a way of controlling people and 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 people coming to consensus that this is the thing that we're going to believe and this is our belief is going to hold us together and and even if you look at the the prophecy the the prophetic side of the story of dune and i don't know how well the movie is going to do this but get across the idea that paul is uh, getting glimpses of the future. He's becoming prescient, um, and and getting getting to understand the path that is being laid before him. Um, that if a really close reading of the text actually shows that this is not a spiritual. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not magic, because the whole universe for Dune. Is is revolves around uh, the human mind, and uh, you may be aware. I don't know whether uh, people who are listening to this are aware of uh, in the in the Dune world an ancient thing that happened thousands of years before was the Butlerian Jihad, uh, where where people uh, thinking thinking machines, which is what we're doing at the moment, creating AI, uh, basically came to rule the the, the universe and people lost their capacity to think and make decisions for themselves. So, so the, mach- the thinking machines were destroyed and uh, there, there are a whole lot of schools that were developed to, to um, 
to concentrate on developing the human mind. So in Paul's situation, he has this really high degree of mental training from his from Thufahawat, the, 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 the Mentat, which is like a human computer. His mother's a Bene Gesserit, um, who, who have full control of their of, of, the, of their body and their, their physical uh, their physical being. Um, so really what's happening for him is not spiritual in any way. It's a huge heightening of his senses so that he can actually through understanding what's happening in the present he can can actually determine what is going to happen but he but but, but he sees multiple futures it's not just one but it is multiple futures and all and he weighs all the probabilities i think i'd challenge the idea that um there's not spirituality in it um all the rituals that the fremens do am i saying that right fremens <laughs> um that's highly spiritual like and they've got mm. rituals for everything and they're not empty rituals either they all have meaning connected mm. to their survival and and mm. to what the way their community works and i would absolutely say that that's spiritual and paul trying to find himself within those communities like he's always straddling these communities and i i think he is he sees that spirituality in the fremen that's one of the things that he really i for me, I think that he really relates to. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that, you know, the Bene Gesserit act as a very spiritualistic group, but sort of privately they always say to themselves, oh, no, we're not a religion, right? And I, I feel like um, where, where, the, where humanity is at at the moment of the Dune books is that some of the leading classes have realize that religion can be used to manipulate people and so they see themselves as outside of religion religion is a tool but then that comes up against the fact of the longing for religious belief not only from the fremen but as the later books come from the fish speakers and from many different classes the, the tailaxu have like a really deep-seated religious belief and so it's almost like this you know, all of these people are making these plans assuming that they can just use religion as a tool and then they keep getting overwhelmed by sort of the quote-unquote true believers who who respond to that in, in a really um, faith-based manner. And so I feel like it's almost asking the question of you can try and say that religious belief doesn't matter, you can try and think of it as just a tool or a political ploy, but actually there's a human longing for, for religious belief or connection to something bigger that will withstand any of that and, and come out in the end. So I don't know, you might disagree, but that's how I see it. And I think there's a real tension in the books. It's one of the things I love about them in between this, this idea that, you know, um, religious thought and community is something we can control. And then, and then, then throughout the book, there are these moments that are actually uncontrollable. So, so people think they have all their ducks in a row and everything is going to turn out the way they want it to. And then all of a sudden something unexpected something very human something very spiritual actually occurs which takes them in a very different direction and i mean i i i love playing the dune board game uh, and one of the roles i love to play more than anything else is the role of the Bene Gesserit. um and and part of that role is actually um having a victory condition that says i win the game um when i help uh, a particular team at a particular time um, reach that their own victory um, and and there, there's a sense in which yes you can strategize yes you can control but there are all of these these uh, uncontrollable elements um, that just 
continually break in. Um, no one expected that Jessica would have a son. Um, she wasn't supposed to have a son. She was supposed to have a daughter so that they could be married to to another son so that the Kowitz Hatterach could be born. And so even the coming of the Kowitz Hatterach seems to break into reality at an unexpected moment, um, which is, yeah, I love that that tension that we've actually just plugged into here um, between control and chaos. Mm-hmm. There's the, there's no denying the spirituality, as you were saying, Michelle. The Fremen, the Fremen are are are, are very are very are very spiritual people. And one of the things I love about about the the book is the is is the depth um, and the richness of of that of that culture uh, that is described. Um, and I just think that's that's wonderful uh, world world building. I was just watching the um, the uh, uh, I think that 2005 or 2008 miniseries, um, and just the the little rituals that 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 the people do, um, in 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 that which is which is part of the Fremen culture that was developed for that particular series. Just touching to see those 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 little nods here and there to a very rich and and deep culture. Speaking of the the films and the the the, the visual televised ones, um, this film, this this book, this story has been notoriously difficult to translate into uh, into film. Um, the nineteen eighty four um, uh, version uh, gave us the opportunity to see what a remarkable musician Sting is, um, uh, <laughs> and uh, and and why it is that he didn't have a, a great film career. Um, but but there were there were there were senses in that where um, they 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 really struggled to communicate the 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 depth the nuance and the complexity of the story um, in 1984. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I know Michelle, you said you haven't seen the uh, 84 one, but um, but uh, what are, what are what are the thoughts around um, the the attempts to turn this into the screen? So I was rereading this time with. Um a perspective of it's I'm going to watch the movie <laughs> and I, I was like so many times I thought so much of this is about the character's internal dialogue well how do you um, meaningfully bring that to the screen without lots of narration or without lots of um, you know them speaking to themselves I thought I actually think it will be really difficult <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one of the poor things about the 1984 version. They have the internal dialogue of a person. The camera will just stay very still and focus on a still face and you'll hear their internal voice. Uh, to me, that doesn't work at all. It just slows down, slows down the whole the whole story. And there are better ways of doing that. I think that the, the part where I did like that in the 1984 was when Irulan does it because she's she's the narrator of the Dune book and she always has those little forward parts. And so for me, not when anyone else does it, I can see what you mean in terms of the other people, but for me having Irulan have that narration function which which grounds the book or, or has that cellar or that pause moment in the book, I think that it plays that function in the 84 movie. But, yeah, I see what you're saying for, for some of the others. But... For me, I think part of the challenge is also that there are so many different angles in the book and um, it's pretty hard in, in, you know, two or three hours to really convey that but also have, you know, the action scenes or the sex scenes or whatever the scenes are that draw the public. You know, um, the 1984 really just focused, I think, mostly on the, um, the, the, the warring houses, the Romeo and Juliet 
aspect of the story and it didn't really go much into the ecology or the economics more broadly or the religion. Um, and I think that the the miniseries version went into a little bit more of that, um, I guess the Fremen as, as a native tribe um, sort of struggling with colonialism, like a little bit, although I, I actually expect that to be more in this new film given recent events and, and further, um, I guess, repudiation of the colonial era and the Black Lives Matter movement and all that kind of stuff. So that's one of my predictions for the movie, that that element will come out more. Um, and I also don't think we've really seen anything yet do justice to the ecological side of the film. And I do wonder as well with the climate change debate and everything happening in our society on that, maybe that will also come out more in the new movie. But, you know, that's yet to be seen. Well, I've yet to see it, so I don't know. Yeah, um, and, and we'll get on to the ecology stuff um, in a little bit. Um, uh, one thing I have um, discovered um, is that we are only getting half the book uh, in this movie. Um, so I, I guess I, I'm kind of pleased that they're not trying to to cram it all in. Um, they're, they're going down that Tolkien kind of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit line where they're actually stretching stretching it out over more than one movie. Um and um, I, I don't know what you've heard about the cast, but um, um, I, I, I'm fairly impressed with the fairly large cast that they've actually got happening uh, in, in this movie. Um, I, I'm particularly pleased um, that Gurney Halleck is going to be played by Josh Brolin. Um, um, and um, I was always disturbed um, that, uh, that the, the books describe him as a, as a very ugly man. Um, and um, and they certainly didn't ever achieve that in their previous casting attempts. <laughs> the well, card's not very ugly, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I only, I only realised when I watched the rewatched the nineteen eighty four version a few weeks ago that the only reason that Patrick Stewart was actually cast for the role of Gurney Halleck in that movie was because there's a, there's a scene that was actually cut out of the cinematic release of him playing the balisette and quoting poetry. That that was that was the reason that he was cast for that because he does that so oh, well, right. and yet that didn't, didn't make the cut. In, in That's the in the cut. YouTube didn't version that, that I just rewatched, and I was like, "What? It's such a great scene. I'm surprised they cut it because that that Balasek, it's like it's so defining for the Atreides and and Gurney specifically. I I would say, and in fact, the music of Dune, you know, each of the cultures has their different uses of music and. Even the Samuta music, you know, the music as a drug, like music is actually quite important in Gene, I would say. Well, now that we've moved to music, mm -hmm. Philip, I wanted to talk to you. You to you, um, lead us into a bit of a conversation around um, music, not only music in the film, but but some of the ways in which music has been used. And, I, and I'm guessing we'll talk about this after we've seen it as well, but you'll have had the opportunity to hear some of the score that uh, Hans Zimmerman has put mm. together. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yes. Um, look, it's a very it's a very powerful score, um, and yet it's very simple on on one particular level. What actually, I, I, I listened to it and 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 I picked up on some musical themes, some musical themes in it, and then what I realised is, is everyone does everyone remember the first trail that came out for June? This this latest one, yep. 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 The first trailer that yep. came out had the Pink Floyd yeah, yep. song. Yep. So, so the Pink Floyd song is the basis for the score. Mm. Yep. 
um, it was it was not the other way around. They chose that song, and Hans Zimmer has used uh, the particular chord progressions in that song, and based the score the score around that. Um, so that, that that was the first thing, and, and that's the song the uh, Eclipse um, from Pink Floyd. Yes. Yep. 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 Um, so so one thing I noticed about it was that was that it's very deep. There's this very sort of um, visceral vibration going through all the all the music it's very very low strings accompanied with synthesizers to like string synthesizers which which emphasize that that the particular depth and resonance um that 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 is happening there um whereas the music in the um in the uh sci-fi uh television version had more of the had more of the wind instruments that we would normally associate with middle eastern culture um so Hans Zimmer is, is gone away away from that uh it's very it's very deep and and um and visceral in that in that respect the um the first track, uh, his, this is also a good thing to do when you're not sure of what's going to happen in the movie. You look at the titles of the of the uh, music, of, of the tracks in the score, and it'll pretty much tell you where the movie's going to end. If you know the story, you can actually plot the, the titles of each track and say, oh, all right, okay, that's where, that's where we're getting up to. And I think the final track is um, uh, something about heading into the desert and heading south. So it's sort of it's it's sort of at that at that point where where he's he's going to hide for a while, um, and he's uh, he's he's decided that he's that that he that he's making this um this um uh, 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 joining in with the Fremen and and they they they're going away to uh, to to build their forces. Um, but but also the the first track was uh, really really interesting. It's about Paul. It's Paul's dream. Uh, and what I found was that it's uh, very tribal. Um, there, there, there's, a, there's a large use of, of drums um, in that. We've played very, very fast, um, extremely rhythmic, and I could never dream of, of playing or writing anything with that type of rhythm, um, which, which really, and I thought it was really important that they associated that style of music with Paul's dreams and Paul's visions of the future. Um, the, 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 the book actually describes Paul's visions and what he can see of the future in two different ways. One, one is sort of like a, like a, a, a material, a cloth, that's, that's, uh, that's blown in the wind and lands, and it has all these troughs and valleys. So Paul can actually see, can't see everything. Some things are hidden from him. Those valley areas, areas where he goes into, and he has no idea what the outcome is going to be, and they call that a nexus in the in in, in the actual book, and um and and he also describes that in another way, almost like a um akin to a sandstorm, but almost like like a vortex, and and the the images are just moving so quickly that. No, no firm impression can he can't make any clear impression of what's happening and that's another way of describing the troughs where he can't actually see things are just moving so quickly he yeah. can't see so i thought that was really good to use the the music 
uh, very, very fast um, beats and drums to describe that really frantic movement, things being so, so quick that he, he can't make out um, exactly what's going on at those times. And Gwen, when um, we first um, were getting together for our, our role-playing session um, a, a little while ago, we were playing the Pink Floyd music and at that stage you were a little uncertain about the use of Pink Floyd um, as part of the score. Um, how's that... Um, developed for you yeah look i think uh pink floyd you know some of the stuff from dark side of the moon like some of the other pink floyd tracks i I don't know if i would have picked that particular one because it's it's uh, what how why good question as to why it just doesn't feel like arrakis or june to me but some of these other things that philip is describing which I, i haven't heard yet in terms of like you know tribal drums in the in the soundtrack of of Phil dreaming a dream in which he ultimately sees jihad taking over the universe, you know, that sounds like it would really resonate. And the use of strings and, you know, I, I, I love strings and, and orchestral music. Um, so I feel like that might be um, more more close to my vision of June. Um, I guess I'm also curious, obviously Hans Zimmer has done some of the most amazing science fiction movies that we have, you know, and so it'll be interesting to see whether he um, differentiates from those or, or whether he goes back to some of those old themes, you know, Blade Runner. I think he did 2001 A Space Odyssey, if I'm not wrong. Um, um, I think that was Richard Strauss. Oh, well, I mean, in that opening scene, absolutely <laughs> it was. Um, but there was still quite a lot of um, input from Hans, if um, I believe. and um, it, But he also did other things like... Um, I think he did Gladiator, right? So he's certainly been in this epic space of of almost um, feudal challenge to each other and all that. And so it'd be interesting to see whether any of those elements get reused in this film mm. or if he's just on a really new creative journey. And Michelle, you're a lover of uh, spiritual and religious liturgy. Um, uh, have you heard, had a chance to hear any of the music in... Um, so far, or, or I guess, what 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 are your thoughts about the ways in which music can convey emotion, sometimes even better, uh, or spirituality better than 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 lyrics um, or, or anything else? Yeah, I haven't listened to any of it, and I'm a little bit young to be familiar with Pink Floyd's music. <laughs> um, so I will be coming into the movie completely um, no preconceptions, just wanting to be washed over. Um, and, yeah, I'll report back to you about what I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I did wonder whether or not some of the lyrics may have, actually, may have influenced the, the decision. I mean, when you think about all that you touch, all that you see, all that you taste, all that you feel, there's this kind of um, um, very uh, all-encompassing sense of what it means to exist um, that I think um, is, is, is at the heart of what the story is about as well. Um, so I wondered whether or not lyrically it was something that attracted Zimmer's attention as well. Yeah, could well be. Mm, mm, I did mm, see mm, Jason mm. Momoa interviewed uh, on the ABC um, this morning and uh, he was asked a question there by the ABC reporter um, which Metallica songs may have actually um, been a better choice and uh, and uh, he uh, he didn't fall for the Enter the Sandman trap. Um, uh, so uh, so. Or Dream um, On, I reckon. Would that was on. What was I just watching? There was something with the rock in it. The way they used oh, it was like the something in the in the um, in the jungle, and they used nothing else matters. 
mm-hmm. Metallica. Yeah. I reckon yeah. you could do some Metallica stuff with Gene. So, so Metallica, <laughs> yeah. Metallica certainly would uh, would would fit as a score. Maybe maybe that's some advice. Um, if uh, Mr. Zimmerman is missing, uh, is listening, um, maybe uh, attempt to incorporate some Metallica into the next one. That'll be interesting to do. Um, be interesting what what song they come out of if it is a two part series. What song do they finish with? Um, mm-hmm. I can see clips being really, really um, the, that that name being really appropriate because the Atreides is a rising house. So the beginning of the story, Atreides is 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 on the um, is on the upward journey. They are gaining um, precedence and and uh, position and power within the within the great houses, um, and and. By the end of this story, you will see them almost utterly obliterated and covered up and almost eclipse. Um, and it's sort of like eclipses aren't permanent. Yep. They cross over in front of and then they pass and the sun shines yep. again. Yeah, and certainly we we will see Paul and his mother Jessica kind of go um, into into the darkness and disappear out of sight. Um, mm. And, I mean, mm. we follow them in the story, but 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 there's a sense in which... Um, I guess there's an assumption by the broader universe that, that they have been lost in in the larger event that's taken place to wipe out the Atreides house. Mm-hmm. I'm interested. I'm interested what to see what they're going to do with um, with Jason Momoa's character Duncan Idaho. Um, in in everyone loves Duncan. Duncan is a fantastic character, so I'm really glad that they have cast a bigger-than-life uh, figure to actually play that that role. Um, but I think I've always found in the other adaptations that I never get enough of Duncan. Mm. I mm. always want more of him, and there's never enough. Well, he so dies too I'm, soon. <laughs> I was going to ask at the beginning whether we were going to do spoilers. Was it going to be a spoiler-free podcast? Yeah, look, oh, I, gosh, I'm not. giving it away. <laughs> I think I think at this point, you know, you can edit that out. In we're place, talking sorry. about the universe, so so I mean, spoilers, spoilers is really, um, you know, if you haven't read the book before now for since nineteen sixty five, then you're probably leaving your run a bit late, um, and <laughs> and and I guess the big. Um, spoilery thing for me because uh, there is actually a, a member of my games group who's actually somehow already watched the movie um we won't speak about that um but but uh like I, I guess i'm what i'm really looking forward to is 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 the how um they've actually pulled it together because i know the story and we we we, we know the story and so so a spoiler in this is a little bit like going to the passion by my by uh, Mel Gibson and saying that Jesus dies in the end. <laughs> but Jesus dies. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I'm not so worried about spoilers. Um, but but Jason Momoa, like he's an amazing actor, but he he's very unDuncan in terms of the physical description of Duncan in the book. Mm. You know, uh, he's actually quite a um, self-effacing, diminutive sort of man. Um, you know, he's often talked about as having sort of a roundish face and. You know, just yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to see whether Duncan becomes more of an action man in the book, in the film, yep. um, than he is in the book. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, we'll see if it works or it's not. I don't know. And certainly, yeah. the glimpses we've seen in the trailer tend to suggest that he's going to go that way. Um, and mm-hmm. and somewhere in the middle, I think, is the balance because certainly in 1984, the the Duncan Idaho they had was just sort of grey and two dimensional. He mm-hmm. was just there was That's just true. he he was really 
relegated to supporting cast. So even though he might uh, have have died early in the story, there was certainly no sense that he was supporting cast in terms of the way the book writes him. Um, so um, and and even continues to be larger than life after he dies. Well, exactly, and I think Herbert had the vision of that that post death. Uh, narrative for Duncan if I don't want to give too much away there as well but there is that sense of him being a major part of the Atreides story even though yeah he, he does die yeah absolutely well look let's circle back around to ecology because I'm very keen to actually talk a bit about that um, Gwen what are your hopes and, and dreams for the ecological conversation that might come out of Dune here what do you hope they do what do you hope they don't do I hope that they um, show more of the reality of a culture based around water scarcity in a way that's really compelling. And although we talked about how beautiful the rituals of June are, um, seen on screen it can look a little bit just sort of superstitious, but but the reality of dealing with a lack of moisture mm-hmm. and and what that makes a society do um, in terms of how they deal with each other in, in the today but then also given that the Fremen have this vision of ecological um, restoration and human habitation and Jim and becoming a paradise, um, you know, what it means to actually sacrifice now for the future of our generations, you know, this is something that's very live for us in our society right now and the Fremen are living it day to day. Like they have absolutely taken on board the fact that they're not going to see the, the canals of water come for them, their children or their children's children, and yet they're still, you know, if they come to these seashores where they have the water caches, no Fremen would touch that. And, you know, there's that one one tribe that's outcast because of being water stealers and, um, you know, they've they as a whole society have come to terms with the need to sacrifice now for the good of people later. And um, But I also think it's interesting because, even even Liet Kynes, the planetologist or climatologist, is really, really focused on turning Dune into um, a place that's fit for human habitation. So it's still really human-centric, even though we're talking about um, bringing a landscape to life. We're actually talking also about destroying the existing ecology and replacing it with something that's more human-centric. And I think that's, that's a little bit different than... Um, you know, some of the things that we're facing in society now where we're actually saying maybe it's okay to leave the planet for, for the, you know, the planet's sake or for nature's sake, this idea that there's value in nature even divorced from the value that it might bring in terms of ecosystem services or any kind of pleasure that it might bring to humans. It's something economists call kind of existence value. Um that, that element of existence value doesn't really seem to be there in Dune and I'm not sure whether that was part of um, Herbert's vision of ecology. So he seems to have sort of the science of it pretty well down pat, like he's obviously done his research and, and I love the fact that there were, um, I think there were recently climate modellers from the University of Bristol who built a computer simulation of Arrakis and showed that basically bar a couple of things, the, the planet structure um, and ecosystem is plausible so he's obviously done a lot of research there, but he just has this this interesting view of ecology that actually is human centric in the end, which I think is kind of interesting. 
Mm. Yeah, because even though at the end of the book they're wanting to preserve some of the desert, it's so that they can still mine the spice. It's not because the desert mm. is beautiful or in any way useful or, you know, just for its own beauty. It's so that they can get something out of it. But then you actually see in the later books um, after after June, which probably won't be in the movies, or, or maybe they'll make more movies if it's successful. But um, when when the jihad has happened and, and the fates have changed, um, there are some characters who do start to long for the desert for the desert's own sake. Just a few, not many, but just a few. And then the, it actually circles back around to religion and culture because they start to see the desert as a symbol of purity. Mm. and they start to see a changing of the desert for human-centric values as, as corruption, and I think, I think that's quite interesting as well. Yep. And, and, I, th- and I, think, I think another part of that is that, um, yeah, it, it then becomes a longing. They, uh, they, they tend to look back with longing to the mm. days. Um, and the, and the, one of the sayings on, on Arrakis is that, um, isn't it, that, that um, Dune, Dune, Dune is a place, Arrakis is a place to train the faithful. Mm. So it's the hardship of the of the environment that actually produces the qualities that they admire and once the ecology changes that also changes the culture they lose that culture and people become what they consider to be soft Mm. um, and losing losing their 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 faith so at the, yeah, at this stage of the story, they don't understand what that trade-off is yeah. is going to be, and that and that loss of yeah. culture, which again is a really contemporary theme. Um, like in many faith discourses, we seem to see that faith flourishes where it's difficult. So people will talk about China at the moment, where they weren't allowed to be Christian, and it flourished, and Africa, where it's really difficult to live. Whereas in Australia where we have all the freedom in the world, then people sort of give it away because um, there's no need to rely on it. You can rely on yourself in much in a much more um, real way than you can in other places where you're sort of having to work for your existence and strive. And there's an interesting parallel narrative to that when we start to talk about the, the emperor's Fadaken and um, and mm. um, the, the prison planet um uh, what is the it? The Sadakar, I think. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Right? No. Sorry. Salu- the Sadakar. Salusa. Yes. So the Fadaken are the are the the elite troops from the Fremen, aren't they? Um, and yeah, that's got, right. That's then you've got the Sadakar who come from Salusa Secundus. Uh, both both places producing these these elite um, soldiers um, because of the hardship uh, and the wilderness of the place where they come from. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But then again, you know, the, the Atreides come from um, the beautiful paradise world of Caladan and, and what actually, you know, sets off the whole, um, you know, of them going to Dune is that the Emperor becomes concerned that they've trained such an elite force that it rivals the Emperor's Sadakar and that's something that kicks off the whole political machinations. But, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting that the Atreides' house are so strong and so seen as so noble when they come from such a paradise. It's a little bit of a juxtaposition to what mm. we were just talking about yeah. in terms yeah. of the hard climate producing um, the strong of faith and, and the warriors. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not one size fits all, is it? No, definitely not. Um, and, and I guess that's once again the thing that's in this book is there's these tensions that it sets up something to be a truth and then actually challenges its own truth as it goes mm. through. And I think that's the mark of a good 
good complex story. Oh, another thing I noticed about the about the writing style the the, the universe is of course much larger, and um, Frank Herbert's son um, has uh, uh, written a whole lot of uh, other novels with a, with another author, Anderson, I think, um, to expand the Dune universe based on his father's uh, writings and and um, and uh, work, working through the backstories and whatnot. Um, I've read the first one and I didn't like it at all because. It didn't have Frank Herbert's style, and what I was looking for was Frank Herbert's style. And it wasn't until I I read the fourth book, God Emperor of Dune, I got to the end, and it's this really thick, hefty tome um, of of a novel, four hundred and fifty odd pages long. I got to the end of it, and I thought nothing happened. Um, <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> it's one of my favourite in the series, God Emperor. That's I know, I know, but yeah. I. But I was, but I was totally engrossed by it. I was totally engrossed by a story that was about nothing. And when I went back about, it, I thought there were only two actual events that I could track. There, there was an event in in the desert where where Leto took his his um, uh, 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 Siona, I think, who was of the Atreides line, into the desert, and. Uh, she um, she didn't put a face mask on on a still suit, and she lost valuable moisture. wasn't a really big wasn't a really big thing. And then of course there's there's the climax of the story with Siona, and I won't say who because that'll be spoilers. Um, and um, and then only those two things happen. Then I realised that 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 he he tells his story through through. Um, conversations it's the the plot is driven through through people's conversations and even though a lot happens in in this story um there's there's the move to dune there's the there's the episode with the with the um the sand crawler getting getting um uh the 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 hijack um and losing the sand crawler and the attack by the harkonnens there are so many sort of big action scenes it still fits that the, uh, Frank Herbert's style, he uses uses the dialogue without long-winded exposition, uh, but really, really clever dialogue. And as we mentioned before, the, um, the, 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 the thoughts relaying what a person is thinking. You know, fear is the mind killer. I will not fear. Um, those internal dialogues is what is what moves the story along, and that was totally lacking from his son's uh, son's <laughs> works after after his death. Those books hit the shelves when I was yeah still in high school, and so for me as a teenager, um, I really liked the the um the you know the, the ones written by his son. But yeah, I, I think you're right. There there is something stylistically very different, and I can see why. You'd, you'd put those down. You'd say that was a nice action story, but it wasn't really doing. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. And there is so much philosophy in mm. Frank Herbert's writings, mm. um, in Frank Herbert's in Dune. I must admit I've only read, read one other book by Frank Herbert, The Heaven Makers, mm. which was a little bit odd. Um, <laughs> but, but they're, they're, oh, it was weird. <laughs> um, but... But, but but yeah, he is dealing with 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 really sort of deep philosophical ideas, mm. um, and um, it's a brave brave author to do that and to carry it off as well as he did. Yeah, yeah. Yep, go on, Gwen. No, no, you're right. I, I was going to say I've read also. Um, there's another one called the Dosadai Experiment, where it's really about um, yeah, what the human mind um can do under stress and 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 those sorts of things, which I think. Herbert was also quite interested in this idea that you can, through training, train humans mm. to be sort of, you know, an ubermensch of some kind and um, 
you know, replacing the need for technology advance. But actually coming back to the, the sequels, one of the sequels um, goes into the story of X a bit more, the technology builders. And I thought from memory, it's been a long time since I read it, but I really liked um, the technological explore, exploration and a little bit more elucidation of the the tech tree that got us to where they're at in in Dune and Arrakis because I think that a lot of the technology um, – is, is almost there for granted in Dune. Like you just don't really understand the significance of, you know, the Spacing Guild or the, the, the No Chambers or, you know, all these different little things that are integral to the plot. Like even a steel suit, most people don't know that that's in, supposedly made out of melange itself, you know, spice plastic and, you know. Right. And um, it's actually we've done very well to spend nearly 50 minutes talking about um, Dune and the Dune universe, and we really haven't spoken about the spice at all. Um, the spice must flow. Um, this this uh, this this uh, product that can only be found on one planet that actually allows space travel to happen, that prolongs life, that has these hallucinogenic um, qualities to it that that everybody seems to have a use for. Um, the, this uh, is, is some really interesting echoes here about dependence um, on 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 a resource um, that that comes up with the spice in June. Yeah, I mean it's a textbook case for why we need monopoly regulation. No, sorry, that's <laughs> <laughs> And this is exactly what Leto fought against in the in the later books in mm. the sequels. This is exactly what Leto fought against, and the whole the whole emphasis of the of the later books is is about breaking that monopoly and, in a way, setting humans free. Yeah. Humans were uh, constrained, um, and when and, and and when we break free of those of, of those things, and it led to huge exploration of of the of the universe mm. um, that wasn't happening under under the old regime because everyone's just worried about the status quo and their and their their position. I heard an interesting commentary the other day talking about fossil fuels in the same way. That yeah. is a sense in which with the Industrial Revolution, we found an easy product we could dig up and make use of. And so it's in some ways stifled invention um, that we, we now know how to mass produce and we can create engines to do that for us. Um, but we haven't moved on um, and to, to anything else. Um, to the to the detriment of our planet and our society. So there's some some really interesting parallels there between um, the 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 silver bullet uh, fix all item that can, or resource that can can solve all our problems, also can imprison us into one way of thinking. Mm. And I think I think that innovation story is really important there, right? Like it, and it also comes back to the prescient ability as well. You know, Paul eventually sort of sees that to, to know the future is to be trapped by it. And um, a lot of what he's trying to achieve is actually to break away from the spice, but break away also from the um, the, the chilling effect that prophecy or, or prescience has. And so I think um, I think innovation was really important to Herbert or, or, or that was something that he made important in this book. Um, and... Um, I think we have a sort of a a love hate relationship with innovation um, at the moment because we we kind of see that it can yield amazing things, but it can also um, bring in unknowns, um, and it also can be 
used as a way to um, to 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 get you know commercial power and to to monopolize other people. And so you know, I think this is getting again into the later books, but this whole idea of the scattering, like they they ended up sort of pushing humanity to just break out of all the existing current molds, the existing current planets, the reliance on anything that was remotely related to the Imperium and just almost start again, um, which is pretty radical, um, a revolutionary kind of approach. But, you know, it seemed to be necessary in, in that context. Mm. He does seem to swing from pole to pole mm. with, with with his story because, um, as you read in the introduction, Will, um, this, this uh, Warner Brothers have put this forward as the hero's journey. And, and Paul is being cast immediately in everyone's mind as, as the hero. He is the hero of this story and we're going to follow his journey until he overcomes all, all, everything in, in his path, all his obstacles and, along the, and he's very honourable and along the way he ends up getting revenge. Um, so all of those things that, 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 are, that are important to the hero's journey. But... By the end of the story, he's he's created a monster. Mm. He's created an absolute monster, and Herbert turns the tables completely. You get to the very end of the story, which won't be the end of this this movie, um, and you realise, oh my God, Paul's Paul's the villain. Yep. Mm. And there's something very Nietzsche-esque in that in terms of the idea of being careful about those who fight monsters lest they become them. Um, mm. um, how, uh, you know, if you stare long enough into the void and the void stares back into you, there's there's some of that kind of um, um, thinking and philosophy that's actually coming out in, in Paul here um, wow. that's that's fascinating to look at. Um, as we come to the, towards the end of this first uh, podcast. I did want to talk about um, potentially the most controversial um, aspect that I think of the story, and and one one that actually has become a big issue in in science fiction in general. Um, a lot of science fiction cr- critics and commentators, especially on YouTube and other places like that, um, are, are suggesting that they're tired of the woke agenda taking over <laughs> science fiction, um, and that, that they just want science fiction to go back to being entertainment, um, as it was in the old days. Um, here we are looking at a, a book written in 1965, um, and um, if if we wanted to explore woke agenda, I think there is so much of it here uh, in this story. Um, as 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 Paul is 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 not um, uh, at least at the beginning a, a classic uh, hegemonic masculine figure, um, but actually surrounded by strong uh, female leads who are actually very influential, and even to the point where you know one could suggest that Paul um, should have been born female, actually born male, can do things that no males can can do, and so there's even some some elements of exploring um, trans identity um, in this story. Uh, wanted to get some some thoughts around the uh, the woke agenda of science fiction and how it applies to the Dune universe. I would argue that Paul's is very much hegemonic masculinity, and that all the females in the book are either there for the male gaze or manipulative witches and they call them witches like I don't think we can pass by this and 
Um, well, while it's true that Paul is influenced by Jessica, that's always seen as a malevolent influence, where it's all the men around him, Harwat and Gurney and Idaho, Idaho. Well, you know, there's all these men and his father and his grandfather and the, all the men hold the power and, and dole out the power between them. Um, and even the fact that, like, they've got concubines, um, but they're marrying for... Um, they're marrying for allegiance and politics. Like that's traditional patriarchy right down the thing. I think, so I think that's true in the first book, but I think that um, as you read the rest of the series, you see that table turned and you start to see it being more the women characters and the women have male concubines and, you know, using Golas for their, Gola being a clone, male clones for their, um, for their own power and there's this whole... Um, you know, with the honoured matrons who is a, a whole new force of women who come in and they use sex to subdue and do whatever they like. And, um, you know, I think I think that's kind of one uh, we were talking before about um, Herbert setting up a truth and then destroying it. I think that's one of the things that throughout the course of the sort of the whole kind of novels as a whole that he does then take down and dismantle in, in future books. So it's I guess it's interesting, like coming back, I've just reread the first book, um, just in prep for the movie, um, and and coming back to it, knowing how it goes in the subsequent books, you, you maybe read the first book a little bit differently. Um, but one thing I always loved, like I think I think you say that you, you mentioned that they they call the Bene Gesserit witches, which they a lot of people do, but um, I think there's a sense in which everybody is wrong to call them that. Like the Bene Gesserit are actually very misunderstood, and they're really if anyone is fighting for the greater good of humanity, it's the Bene Gesserit. Um, you know, they've got long-term plans and they're always trying to do things that are for the good of humanity. And um, one one thing I always found interesting was the relationships between the different Bene Gesserit women in, in both the first book but also as it goes on and gets more into them, you know, like Jessica deciding to go against the Bene Gesserit and have a daughter, be, uh, sorry, have a son because she loved her duke. And then her relationship with her reverend mother is the reverend mother is really angry with her for doing that and stuffing up the breeding program, but she also understands why she did it and she kind of has this sense of if I could bear this burden for you or take it away from you, I would. So it's like it's kind of interesting. And I, I hear what you're saying, Michelle, about the, those men, um, but I, I, I think that what Frank Herbert has done is is that, that none of that was successful, that all of those men that they, they all they all fail they all they all die um and it's actually the 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 women who actually prevail um in this and that that paul is kind of um led towards this idea that he needs the men but but the men that he needs actually um are, are unable to actually fulfill or, or help him to actually move forward in his destiny um which i i found really really uh, as a, as a young man, kind of f constantly feeling that pressure to behave and conform and be in a particular way, um, uh, that that to have a story that actually kind of set all that up and then tears all that down um, is is a a fascinating rethink from that perspective. Not denying there's not hegemony in there and that the tension exists, but I think once again we've got Frank Herbert kind of setting up a tension and then tearing it down again um, and 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 setting up a truth and then and then challenging it 
albeit in a nineteen sixty five way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, it, but 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 also in 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 the end, when Paul when Paul um, uh, overcomes all all of the all of the adversaries against him, including the Bene Gesserit, what does he say to them? He's he says, "Look at that place." inside of you where you can't look and you'll see me looking back at you. <laughs> um, and, and, and you can't escape, um, as you're saying, Michelle, you just can't escape the universe that, that Herbert has created is very male dominant. Mm. Um, yeah. There, and, and, and I think that, and I think that's, that's politically, but within that he has, he has uh, written some, some wonderful female characters. I love Jessica. I love Charney and I'm really looking forward to seeing um, how they uh, portray Kynes, which in the movie is uh, played by a female actor. Mm. I think that's an interesting choice because mm. in the book, you know, Chani has um, some sort of reverend mother abilities which she gets from the female line and if her mother is kind and off-worlder, that, that element can't work. But set, if you set that little piece aside for one second, I think the whole idea of kinds being a woman is actually kind of interesting. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, and but, I think it's one of those things that changes the changes the gender balance. It's a character. I, I'm not sure that they will keep the relationship between Shani and and Kynes and Leah. Uh, um, they might just dispense with that completely because yeah. it's not a really um, fundamental part of the story. Um, but it was but it was good that they sort of said it doesn't matter if this character is male or female um, and let's let's just change the gender balance there um, mm. and add some add some uh, some, some some more um, powerful female characters mm. Mm. but but turning to other aspects of the the so-called woke agenda I, I think the the colonial part of it is also quite interesting right because you have the the Fremen, have been oppressed for so long and and they're really striving for um the right to to live and practice their culture without being under the thumb of any particular off order but again there what ultimately happens is they then go on this huge colonial jihad throughout the empire and you know become the the ruler and the oppressor you know and i think there's there's a lot of cyclical stuff in June where somebody starts in a particular role and they reverse with someone else and the cycle continues. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do with that kind of element. Um, and the Fremen are rescued by um, Paul, so that's mm. still the colonialist coming in yeah. to rescue and be the rescuer. I don't find mm. this book very woke at all. <laughs> yeah. um, and I guess... I have been very intentionally reading just female authors and just non-white authors. Mm. And last time I read Dune, I wasn't. I, I loved it. I thought it was a really good story. This time, coming from that perspective, I just it just feels like male wokeness, which is not woke at all, which is kind of just, you know, a different play on power. I think that one of the things that's... Um, uh fascinating for us is actually exploring some of the anachronistic natures of this so we're, we're looking at a text that was written in 1965 um, now in 2021 um, and and often when I've been on my other podcasts some of the things that 
I, I would never have thought twice about in, say, Star Trek Next Generation, um, now, now actually seem wildly inappropriate and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and absolutely crazy. Um, uh, so it's, it's fascinating to kind of look at the idea that, that, that even though it's, it's uh, uh, inept and clumsy um, and, and um, coming from a male perspective, that, these, that there was, a, I guess, a, 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 an, an attempt within science fiction to still wrestle with some of these issues and explore um, the fact that there are questions that could or, or need to be asked. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are right into science fiction who would just rather not ask the questions at all, which I think is really, really sad. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of getting away from the purpose of science fiction, which which I think science fiction as a genre really started by saying we've got these problems in our current society and it's too difficult to, to set a, a novel in the contemporary to, to look at these issues Um because it's just too painful or it would get banned or whatever. And so let's create a different universe um, where there's still humans and see how some of these things um, work out. Like science fiction has often been very cerebral and very um, concerned with societal questions. And so the, the idea that, that science fiction should just be kind of pulpy adventure, I think, really takes us away from from the tradition of science fiction, which has this really rich tradition. And maybe it, it is a limited tradition and only grappling with these questions from a couple of perspectives. You know, definitely it's it's true that, you know, white males are, are predominant among science fiction authors. But, um, yeah, I, I think, I don't know, that's what I love about science fiction and I think it's a bit different to fantasy because it grapples a bit more than than... I mean, it's not it's not all fantasy though, right? Like, there's a lot of great fantasy that does also grapple with um, a lot of deep issues. But I think science fiction it kind of started with that intent. Mm. I mean, mm. I'm happy to hear views to the contrary, but that's how I see it. Yep. No, I I think you're right, and um, I think we are making progress. Um, but like the fact that N.K. Jemison still has to write under a abbreviated name because no one like. Is it no one or very few women have won the Nebula Awards or the Hugos and things? So um, we still have this really strong white hegemonic male tradition within mm. science fiction. And I guess I'd like to see us move beyond that because the N.K. Jemisons are writing just really interesting stuff. Yep. Oh, I'd, I'd agree wholeheartedly with that. Anywhere it comes from. I care where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But well, it's more than I don't care. I think I think science fiction is richer if more voices are added to it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not it's not it's not a case of origin doesn't matter at all, right? Like everyone brings something as an author to to books. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that completely, Michelle. Well, it's been a fabulous discussion. Um, we're all prepped and ready now to go and watch the movie. Um, I guess um, let's finish um, our time together, maybe with a with with a with a brief statement about what we what we hope to see when we go and see this movie, um, and maybe something we hope we won't see um, when we go and see this movie. Um, well, I hope there's not too much violence because I have a very weak stomach. <laughs> Um, I hope it's beautiful. I hope it's beautifully shot. Yes. Mm. Yes. 
I absolutely agree. I, I hope the visuals uh, and the and the music and, and the way that they play with light and everything just really draws us into the universe. It, it's such a rich world. Um, and my 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 dislike is slightly different to Michelle's. I hope in the action scenes there's not the equivalent of Legolas skateboarding down the side of a uh, of a <laughs> castle, right? Like just great. And that's that's probably, if I'm honest. What, what I'm most worried about with the Jason Momoa casting because he's been in so, like, you know, I don't want an Aquaman there. Like, mm. I, there are a lot of action scenes in the Dune novel and so I think we, we're not going to be able to get away from some violence and some action because that that is canon. But just I don't want to see backflips and, you know, I don't know, just silly action scenes <laughs> more suitable to a Marvel comic book movie. <laughs> No, I, I agree with Michelle and Gwen that I want to see something visually spectacular and I'm sure we will. Um, I am looking forward to the to the whole um, experience with sound um, as well um, and, and enjoying, enjoying the score and, as I said before, that, that, that depth to it, to the sit in your chair and, and you feel yourself vibrating because the, 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 the music is so low in the frequency. Um, but, but, but apart from that, one of the things that the Dune universe has struggled with in adaptations over the years is, is around the use of technology. And I really want them to be able to get across the idea that this is a universe that has turned its back on high technology. I mean, there is technology there, but they don't rely on it. And they've, and, and the, all is about attuning the human body and attuning the human mind um, and, in, and improving our, our skills and high levels of training is really what I want to see because I don't want to see another weeding module. Oh, God, no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> from and this this is what the 1984 version struggled with they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't handle the idea that this um that this universe which is thousands and thousands so far in the future they've forgotten that earth is their origin planet it's it's like it's like a myth no no one really believes that there was one planet that humans came from yeah. um and everyone's forgotten so in this uh universe so far in the future to actually think that they don't rely on high levels of technology is is really alien to our way of thinking at the moment because we all we think is that we're going to uh, steadily increase our level of technology over, mm. over the over the mm. millennia. Um, so I really really want them to be able to get across that that particular idea, um, and I you know, I'm not so confident that they will get across the idea that that for Paul um, this is not a like it is a mystical experience that he is going through, but it's a purely biological. He's as said before, he's not seeing the future. It's his own heightened senses that are accurately predicting the future. Okay, mm. which is very different to receiving a vision from God. Yes, he's not receiving visions from God at all. Yeah, um, and and I hope they get across. That, that particular mm. idea that there's 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 no heavenly visions for for Paul. In fact, he in might story. be receiving visions from drinking worm pee. Is that right? Um, I think that's how it works. <laughs> no vomit, <laughs> vomit, bile, bile. Um, I'm hoping that we see Josh Brolin play the Balaset. Um, I would like yeah. to see that. Um, and uh, and and see that. Um, and I'll be happy as long as I never have to see Sting in speedos again. Um, 
Yeah, so if there's if there's no, no he was supposed no to be naked in that scene, and they created yeah. the speedos last minute to be a bit more PC. To, to be a bit more, and and actually, I guess we can thank 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 God for small mercies in relation to that. Um, so look, lots to lots to look forward to, lots to hope. Thanks for joining me. Um, we will look forward to hearing your impressions after the movie. Um, not not impressions of actors, but impressions of the movie. Um, <laughs> and um, I look forward to, to catching up uh, then. So thanks Gwen, Michelle and Philip for joining me for this first podcast about um, the Dune universe and the Dune movie uh, that is uh, being released tonight as we do this recording. Thank thanks, you. For, thanks for having us. never odd or even production.